0: Welcome to the Sermon of the Week. Before you begin listening, let me pray that you
1: would encounter God right where you are. Father, I ask that your Spirit would be present wherever people are listening. May they be aware of your presence and receptive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you listen to this week's message. Well, today we have um, the privilege to have one of uh, our dear friends, uh, we have known Skylar and, and Courtney for a few years uh, before they were married. Uh, but one thing, as uh, I was thinking about, you know, introductions are always one of those things that you do and you, you talk about the person. And I, one of the things that came up to me about you, Skylar, is that uh, Paul says, do not let anyone look down on your youth because you're young. And Skylar has always been one of those guys that's been passionate about Jesus? Uh, You know, sometimes our passions go all over the place, right? They lead us uh, to different avenues of life. Uh, A scholar is not a perfect man, but he is a man that loves Jesus, and that's always something that I've appreciated about you. And welcome, you guys. So glad that you could be here. So once we welcome Scholar as he comes to share the word, come on up.
0: Very encouraged. Thank you, David. Grateful to be with you guys. I'm humbled. I have a genuine sense, and this is not just a nicety, that I'm in the presence of people who are very precious to the Lord, that you're dearly loved saints, and uh, that I'm in the presence of a lot of maturity. I got a chance to participate in the morning prayer service this morning, and the presence of the Lord was strong in that place. God's heart for Israel was strong in that place. And I'm gonna preach on prayer this morning. I'll get into that in just a moment, but uh, just a little bit of context. I'm a campus missionary locally at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I get to hang out with Salazaku. If you've been calling him Sal, you gotta use his full name, because that is a great name. Um, But we are a, a very mission oriented organization. I'm also the campus movement director for the organization as a whole, so help oversee our campuses throughout the Southeast and just laboring amongst the 1% of the world population that's on the college campuses of America, believing for spiritual awakening and revival, that God's going to touch the campuses of America again uh, with historic outpouring unto the ends of the earth. And my wife, Courtney, on the front row with our beautiful daughter, Olive, uh, Olive Wilder. I want to share my, my children's namesakes because prayer is part of their namesake. Wilder is from Grace Wilder. Uh, the sister of Robert Wilder, who in the student volunteer missions movement, which in the course of 50 years would see, at the lowest possible estimates, 20,000 missionaries go to the nations from America's campuses. She was the prayer starting point. She had a small group of 34 young women who were part of a Bible study, a prayer group. Uh, and she, they d- signed this declaration. It's a pretty bold declaration. I forget the exact wording, but it went something like this. We hold ourselves desirous and willing to be used by the Lord, even if it should be in a foreign land. She got 34 young women to sign this petition, and she knew that her brother Robert was going to be going to uh, one of the first ever collegiate uh, conferences, I guess you could call it, that D.L. Moody was hosting. And she said, Robert, will you start praying with me for God to raise up missionaries to go from the U.S. to foreign soils? And by the end of that conference, the Mount Hermon Uh, 100 or 200 it was, had signed that declaration. And in the coming years, 20,000 would go to international uh, mission fields. My son, Ezra Nash, Nash for Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash, many of you probably know, was the intercessory forerunner for Charles Finney, who would show up weeks before Charles Finney, the great preacher and evangelist of the Second Great Awakening, uh, to rent out rooms. He'd be in basements. He'd be in small little rooms. He'd be fasting. He'd be laying on his face. And Charles Finney would report that when he would show up, Daniel Nash would be drained of color from battling the powers and the principalities over those regions. And he would say, the Lord has come. And he said, I never knew a time where he was not right. And many of you are familiar with the name Charles Finney, but few people know the name Daniel Nash. And within just a short period after Daniel Nash passed away, much of Charles Finney's evangelistic itinerant ministry would dwindle down. I want to talk to you about prayer that changes history this morning, but specifically something that I like to call out when I'm in a prayer meeting that feels to the flesh, to our carnal nature, unimpressive, like it's not doing a whole lot. Colleen used to be in, uh, my mom's good friend Colleen, uh, used to be in some of these prayer meetings. We'd get together an hour before my work would start. I used to be a pastor at a local church, and just myself and mostly older women would show up, and I would just cry out, and I was more so reminding myself in faith that weak prayer meetings change history. It's not the prayer meetings that have this mass amount of attendance always. It's not the prayer meeting that's bustling with people and activity and loud voices. Sometimes it's the quiet sob. Sometimes it's the two or three people. Sometimes it's the one person who's got a promise that they've received from the Lord who will pray it through, who will prevail in prayer. I want to talk to you this morning about weak prayer meetings that change history. We're in a moment right now where, as David said, I believe God is raising up watchman on the wall for the salvation of Israel. I believe that he's turning the predominantly Gentile church's heart, even through tragedy and through trouble, to pray for something that's huge on his heart. And I'm not talking this morning just primarily about praying our own prayer list, but praying the things that are on God's hearts. And I've realized that when I pray things that I've never even had a heart for, things that are found in scripture, nations I've never visited, places I've never set feet on, that it has a soul-enlarging effect on me. It pulls me outside of myself. I remember Bob Gladstone said one time, praying for the salvation of Israel is one of God's great ways to get us off of navel-gazing where we're so consumed with ourselves and we start praying for the salvation of the nations. And I think it's, it's interesting that Lauren Cunningham, the day before all of this broke out in Israel, went to be with the Lord, the founder of Youth With A Mission that currently has around 20,000 active missionaries, 1,200 missionary bases the world over. This sense of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and God's heart for Israel, we're living in a significant hour of history. In other words, this is not a time to sleep through the prayer meeting. This is not a time to be sleeping through the prayer meeting. The Lord is asking who would tarry with me. Before I came here, I had a sense knowing David and Lois that this was a praying church, but I got on Mission Community Church's webpage, and I found a list of the most important meetings in the church. And the tab I'm referring to is the one labeled prayer. And the top of the page says there's power in prayer. And it goes on to list The Gap, weekly Tuesday prayer meeting from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., monthly seeking prayer the first Wednesday of the month, which is currently on hold, I understand, from the website for some discipleship meetings, also important. Weekly prayer uh, on Friday mornings from 7 to 8 a.m., and then this precious prayer meeting that I had the uh, joy of getting to participate in this morning, uh, Sunday mornings from 8.45 to 9.30 a.m., where all the volunteers and prayer warriors are invited to join Uh, this praying team in the cafeteria and pray before the service. It's a famous book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, in which Jim Cimbala, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, talks about a season of his life where he returned from Florida uh, where his in-laws had paid for him to take a visit, try to get in some different air, get outside of New York City. He had a cough that had been persistent for six weeks. And while he was there, the Lord had really gripped his heart that the prayer meeting was going to be the most important meeting in the church. He came back to his congregation. He says, I wanna say to you with all the seriousness I can muster, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. What happens on Tuesday night will be the gauge by which we judge success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. If we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. If we don't call upon the Lord, he has promised Nothing. Nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend upon our times of prayer. A visiting minister from, he couldn't remember, Australia or New Zealand happened to be there that morning. He invited him up to share a couple words and he said this, you can tell how popular a church is based on who shows up on a Sunday morning. You can tell how popular The pastor or the evangelist is based on who shows up on a Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is based on who shows up for the prayer meeting. Something we say our our community gathers several times throughout the week, but our large gathering that feels much like a church service on campus is Sunday nights. And almost without fail, like a broken record, we stand up every Sunday night and we list off the Bible studies and the evangelism times and the different ways to get connected. We say, but the most important meeting, is tomorrow. And now we do Thursday mornings as well. We're going to have a prayer meeting. And if we said Francis Chan or Jackie Hill Perry or John Piper or Bill Johnson or whoever your favorite pastor, preacher, evangelist was going to be here tomorrow, we would fill up an auditorium. But tomorrow, God is going to be in the prayer meeting. And he's promised that where two or three are gathered, he will be there in his midst. And yet, how many of you know, that if you've been around the church for a while, the hardest meeting to get people to show up for is the prayer meeting? And I'm an evangelist by nature, so I know the next hardest task is from the prayer meeting to the streets. But God loves the lost and God loves the prayer meeting where he shows up and visits people with his presence. There's many forms of prayer contemplative prayer, silent prayer, listening prayer. A large majority of my prayer is actually done in a journal. I learned from Ken Helser, prayer journaling, just journaling the voice of God, sitting with with God. So I believe in all forms of prayer, but this morning it's not either or. I want to talk to you specifically about contending prayer. Prayer that takes hold of God's promises in scriptures and wrestles with God, contends with God until we secure answers. And how we engage in prayer should not be based on personality type. If we can be honest, sometimes we think that the loud, the, the emotionally uh, extroverted, those with, who are passionate in expression are those who contend in prayer and the more silent, introverted, reserved type engage in forms like contemplative prayer. It's not either or, it's both. And it's not about a personality type. It's not about what it looks like on the outside. It's about getting beyond ourselves in the place of prayer. I tell our students, you know, the average college campus, secular campus is around 5% reach for the gospel. That means 19 out of 20 people that you engage with need the gospel. At UNC Charlotte, it's 2%. Based on our estimates, it's about five to 700 out of 34,000 that are connected to some form of student ministry on campus. And I know that's a rough estimate. Many more are probably engaged with the local church or have some form of personal connection to the Lord. But regardless, I say, who will stand in the gap for the 98%? Who will contend for God to show up with historic outpouring? See, we want spiritual awakening. We want revival, not because sometimes church can get a little bit boring and we want a little more thunder and lightning not because it would just make things a little bit more zesty or interesting, but because we can't live without it. For the the sake of those who will not pray for themselves, we'll stand in the gap and say, God, we need you to show up. I want us to get a vision this morning of the Lord Jesus drenched in the dew of the morning in a mixture of his own perspiration and tears, bent through the watches of the night, praying for his disciples, and the lost world. A picture of the ascended Lord at the right hand of the Father who lives forever to make intercession for us. Love what Dave Thomas, who recently preached at Church of the City in New York, I highly recommend. He preached a sermon called Sewing for Awakening. He said that the Bible seems to be altogether unfamiliar with casual prayer. Hebrews 5 7 tells us while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Uh, When David reached out to me and Joe the other day in an email asking for the title of my sermon, to be honest, I was late in getting back to them. I'd had a very busy week, lots of good stuff going on. But I was like, once I get through this week, I'll be able to like move on and fully dedicate. I'd been thinking about this Sunday, but I wasn't able to give it the full space and uh, just thinking through and praying through what I was to preach on. And then David reached out with a text. He's like, hey, I don't know if you saw our email. And I kind of felt this sense of pressure. We were on our way to the park. And also because it's been a busy week, I was like, I just need family time. But I had stirring in my heart this idea of like, yeah, think prayer that changes history. And so I just, I felt the Lord. I was gonna say, hey, can I wait till Tuesday? The Lord was like, no, send that. I felt this sense of confirmation. But I did ask, can I have till Tuesday till I get nailed down the passages that I'm gonna use? Well, then we get to the park And they had one of those take a book, leave a book boxes. Do you guys know what these look like? They're the little boxes. Sometimes they have the same thing for cans of soup and different things. Well, just out of curiosity, I peered into the box. And I'm not endorsing this book because I haven't read it. All I needed was the title. I looked inside the box and there is a book. I don't know if you can see this. It says, The Hidden Hand of God, Remarkable Answered Prayers. There was another book in the box and it said, Winks from God. And again, I haven't read either book, but I got my wink from God that day that he wanted to talk about remarkable answered prayers, prayers that change history. Ian Bounds, the famous author of On Prayer, which is really seven different books on prayer, said that the possibilities of prayer are the possibilities of God. The possibilities of prayer are the possibilities of God. This morning, I want to pray that God would increase our faith and deepen our burden to be a praying people until, that word until, until, until. We'll pray for the healing of the person with cancer until they get healed or they enter into glory. We'll pray for the fullness of the nations to come in until the Great Commission is complete. We'll pray for maturity in the church until we grow up into the complete man, until we become like Christ Jesus. We'll be in labor pains until Christ is fully formed in his people. We'll be in prayer for the salvation of Israel until all of Israel is saved, until the Lord sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives and comes in and sets up his kingdom, until God manifests his glory in the earth. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And while you guys turn your Bibles there, it'll also be on the screen. What's really interesting about 1 Samuel is In the Septuagint, which would follow the order of our books in the Old Testament, you get Ruth in between Judges and Samuel. But in the Tanakh, the the three-part structure of the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus would have likely used growing up and been familiar with, you have all the same books. It's not a different Bible, but the order is different. And you go straight from Judges into Samuel. And what's interesting, I'm not going to give you any description other than a very vague one of the last couple chapters of Judges. It's really dark like explicit warning, parental guidance needed. Judges 19, 20, 21, maybe 22, I forget how many chapters. It's a really dark, backslidden, perverse hour in Israel's history. And the last line of Judges is in that day, people did whatever was right in their own eyes. In 1 Samuel 3, we're told that the word of the Lord was rare in that day. There was no prophetic voice, The priesthood described by Eli's two sons in 1 Samuel 2.12 says that they were scoundrels. So you have a priesthood that's not doing its job, a backslidden nation that's in constant need of rescuing and revival from the judges. This dark hour with no prophetic voice and the bridge story we get between that hour of history and the setup of the Davidic kingdom is a weeping woman named Hannah. The bridge between that hour in history and the Davidic kingdom, the picture of the kingdom we long to be established more perfectly through the Lord Jesus is a weeping woman named Hannah. The story picks up in 1 Samuel verse one. There is a certain man from a Ramathim, a Zuthite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Hannah had none. Contending prayers often birth out of barrenness, a place of felt need. Leonard Ravenhill once said that all revival and true spiritual awakening is always preceded by barrenness. We like to start with our strength, but God asks us to honestly assess the situation and start in the place of felt need. When people ask me, how are things going on campus? On one level, I want to say really good. We've got students engaging in prayer. We've got students boldly sharing the gospel. We've got higher attendance than we've ever had, Bible studies growing, great engagement. But there's also thousands that don't know Jesus yet, headed towards a Christless eternity. I can't separate how the ministry is doing from how the little city that we're placed in is doing. And from that place of felt need is birth contending prayer. If we wanna earnestly pray for spiritual awakening, we have to honestly assess our current cultural moment and recognize our desperate need for God's intervention. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're not at a place in our culture that's altogether unfamiliar. You know, in the first great awakening, six out of nine, I'll just keep using for for just a moment the university context, because there is a great revival history there, and that's the context that I come to you speaking from, is six out of the nine Uh, early institutions of higher learning or Ivy League schools that we would call them were birthed out of the First Great Awakening. Schools like Yale and Harvard. These were places that were actually planted to raise up the next generation of evangelical leaders. Well, that was in the First Great Awakening. By the end of the 1700s, the state of the nation had grown uh, so backslidden that they actually tried to do a poll at Harvard to see how many students identified as Christian. Do you know how many there were? Zero. Zero. At the end of the 1700s, there were zero professing Christians at Harvard. So they said, hey, let's go down the road to a more evangelical university. Let's go to Princeton. And they had two professing Christians. One article that I read on the Christian Union said that Voltaire averred and Thomas Paine agreed that Christianity would be dead within 30 years. One, the chief, U.S. Chief Justice at the time said that the church was past redemption. Fast forward to the ni- end of the 1960s, sex, drugs, rock, uh, rock and roll revolution, the hippie generation, the generation that couldn't be saved, given to psychedelic drugs and all types of craziness. There was great political tension. The nation was at war. Time Magazine published an article that, that the cover of Time Magazine said, God is dead. Do you know what was just years away? The Jesus revolution, the Jesus people movement, where God would begin to reveal himself to an unknown generation. You know what was right on the tail end of the 1700s, the second great awakening. The haystack prayer meeting where five people had gotten a copy of William Carey's Evangelization of the World, a book that he had written for the UK to spur his generation on towards global evangelization. And they were talking about world missions and then their talk because of a thunderstorm turned into an intercessory prayer meeting where five young college students started praying for God to send forth missionaries. And one of those young men, Samuel Mills, at the end of the meeting said, we can if we will. That was coming just years away from a generation that had zero professing Christians at Harvard. Two at Princeton. I want to say we're not in an altogether unfamiliar cultural moment. These, these deep valleys can often, if there is a praying people, what causes the shift in history? It's so cyclical. Praying people. Weak prayer meetings. People recognizing their barrenness. Have you ever thought about the fact that not one or two, but all three of the patriarchs married barren wives? All of them that were gonna bring forth the seed of Messiah. All of them were barren. I think some of you, This morning, God wants to impregnate with prayer. God wants to impregnate a people with prayer. You know, I remember after our first child was born, someone was like, hey, what revelations have you gotten of God since you've become a father? And they were probably looking for some father, you know, heart of God revelation. I had none. I said, intercession. I stood next to my wife and pregnancy is so intense. I've stood by her side for the birth of two children now. And, and, and all I can know is that, man, God is the God of the miraculous, the suddenly, the as soon as, the immediately, but He also designed this really intense nine month period where you can't really get comfortable at night. And sometimes you're sick and, and your low back hurts. And, but the closer you get, the more eager you are for that child to come forth. And both of our children were 10 days late. And, And I think about how no two people's pregnancy looks exactly the same, but God designed pregnancy and he does this suddenly. And the closer you get to the birth of the baby, the more intense it gets. And I believe God is looking for people to be pregnant with prayer in this hour, and he's looking for midwives to stand in the gap and cry out for revival until God manifests his glory in the earth. The question posed by our barrenness culturally as a church will be, how will we respond to this hour that we're living in? I believe history will be written by how we pray. You know, in this crazy hour of history, too, I just want to give you this picture. I believe, I think every person can agree this next year is probably going to be crazy. We're heading into an election year. Already, there's just so many fault lines geopolitically all around the world. And I think that this is the posture. If we don't want to get hit by the opinions and just all the stuff we can get called, you know what we need to do? We just need to get low. And I think it was Reinhard Bonnke said that when your face is on the ground, so many things just go over your head. Like we just need to be in this posture, not exalting ourselves and our opinions constantly on Facebook and social media, but just be in the place of prayer. Looking for the arrival of Jesus' kingdom. And we just need to stay faithful in that place of prayer. Picking up in verse three, it says year after year, year after year. This went on for some time. This man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, those scoundrels, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day for Elkanah to to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord, had closed her womb. You know, that might mess with some of our theology, but God had providentially allowed the barrenness of Hannah. Sometimes we want to rebuke our areas of lack and they may actually be God's divine invitation into the place of prayer because there's something that he wants to birth, but he wants to do in the place of prayer. I remember thinking one time, prayer feels so inefficient. It feels like you could do this so much better if you didn't involve me. Have you ever thought this before? And be honest, how many of you have ever just thought, God, why prayer? I mean, I can actually think of a time in the Bible where God didn't use prayer, the creation account, and it was pretty clean. Like, I mean, just day after day, things are just like rolling out each realm of creation and God's just saying, good, 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 very good. So if he can do all of that sovereignly without our participation, why doesn't he? Because he loves partnership. Because he loves your participation. God from the beginning has been looking for a human family of sons and daughters to co-rule over his good creation. And he's pulling you into that place of participation and partnership. Not because he couldn't do it without you, but because he doesn't want to. He's looking for a loving bride to be at the right hand of his son. Because the Lord, it says again, verse 6, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. I was looking at my notes and I had that line written out in quotes. And I was like, wait, is that really in the Bible? That feels like a comment I would make on, on what's happening in the Bible. That's really in the Bible because her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Have you ever noticed that the enemy will take advantage of every opportunity to harass, wear down and irritate you in the places where God has given you his greatest promises. I mean just because it's we're talking about it this morning, probably the most contested plot of land in human history is the place where Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. Is it any surprise that it's been in the crosshairs of the enemy throughout all of history? God has a plan for that city. God has a destiny For that place. Provoking her over and over again to irritate her. What if the places where the enemy has been taunting you personally are specifically tied to your destiny? Verse seven. This went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. It brought her to the place of fasting and tears. Lou Engle said, we've taught a generation to feast and play, but the times demand we fast and pray. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why don't you, why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? He's trying to pacify her and it's done with good intentions. But she's got a burden from the Lord and she's got to carry that thing through. once when they had finished. God, we ask you at birth prayer in your people. We ask for the gift of tears to come back to your body, God. We ask for the Holy Spirit's deep groans and sighs of intercession. God, we ask for the gift of tears. God, we're asking for burdens in the place of prayer that won't easily lift, that won't easily be distracted from, that won't easily be pacified. We pray for more of what David talked about, 26 years, staying long, staying faithful, holding fast to the Lord. Once when they had finished uh, Eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was uh, sitting on his chair by the doorpost uh, of the Lord's house and in deep anguish, in deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever, ever be used on his head. She's offering her son voluntarily as a Nazarite, a consecrated one to the Lord. And as she kept on praying the Lord, uh, to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. I believe again, because of where this story finds itself in the bridge between the state of the nation and the establishment of the Davidic kingdom and God's promise ultimately to David to always have a descendant seated on the throne, that what we're supposed to see in Hannah's situation is a parallel, the state of the nation. Israel is not bringing forth the fruit of righteousness. They're not shining their light to the nations the way that they're supposed to. And so Eli is altogether unfamiliar with this deep anguish, this weeping prayer that as a priest of the Lord, he should be familiar with and practicing himself. He should be in anguish over the state of the nation, but he's reclining in his chair in the house of the Lord and knows nothing about that type of prayer. His statement is an indictment on the priesthood and I'm preaching as much to myself, I want more tears in this season, God. I want fresh burdens. I want fresh brokenness over the generation I'm living. When we use the word generation, I'm not just talking about those between a certain age range. If you're alive and breathing, you're part of this generation. You were born into this hour of history for just such a time as this. Eli, uh, Hophni, phineas they should be practicing this type of prayer. They know nothing about it. She says, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the Lord, the God of Israel grant what you have asked for. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face no longer looked downcast. And this this turn in the story can feel random. How do you go from such deep anguish? How do you go from such bitter weeping to just going on your way and being fine? This is what the the saints of old called prevailing prayer they would take hold of a burden in prayer and pray it through until they felt like they had secured the answer in the heavenlies. And then they would go, they would say, do you feel like something shifted? Should we move into a time of rejoicing? Should we move into a time of thanksgiving? I remember reading a testimony one time of a guy who observed one of the early Salvation Army meetings. And if you don't know this, back in the day, the Salvation Army, I mean, they were evangelists. They were street evangelists. It wasn't just a consignment shop. And And this guy went into this meeting, he goes, I've never seen prayer like this before. I mean, just all over the place, just people on their face. And all of a sudden one would pop up and he'd say, I've just won 10. And then what they said they had won in prayer, they would go out in the streets and they would win 10 souls to the Lord. Prevailing prayer, prayer that gets through. It's prevailing because it gets an answer and it pulls it through. We need more of this type of prayer. Prevailing prayer. Prayer. Are there any examples from history? Can we look to other examples of this type of prayer? One of my heroes, Hudson Taylor, in his uh, biography, Hudson Taylor and His Spiritual Secret, it talks about the beginning of his spiritual life, and it says that it was a quiet hour amongst his father's books when young Hudson Taylor sought something to interest him. His mother was away from home and the boy was missing her. The house seemed empty, so he took the story he found to a favorite corner in the old warehouse, thinking he could read it as long as it did not get prosy. Here's what I want you to notice. Many miles away, the mother was specially burdened that Saturday afternoon about her only son. Leaving her friends, she went alone to plead with God for his salvation. An hour after hour passed while that mother was still upon her knees until... There's that word until, until her heart was flooded with a joyful assurance that her prayers were heard and answered. The boy was reading, meanwhile, and the booklet he had picked up, and as the story merged into something more serious, he was arrested by the words, the finished work of Christ. Who can explain the mystery of the Holy Spirit's working? Truth long, familiar, though neglected, came back to mind and heart, and the reality of the wonderful experience we call conversion filled him with peace and joy. Longing to share his newfound joy with his mother, he was the first to welcome her home on her return. I know, my boy, I know, she said with her arms around him. I've been rejoicing for a fortnight in the glad news you have to tell. Another surprise awaited him not long after when picking up a notebook he thought was his own. He found an entry in his sister's writing to the effect that she would give herself daily to prayer until God should answer in the conversion of her only brother. The young girl had recorded this declaration just a month previously. If you don't know who Hudson Taylor is, he's the founder of the China Inland Mission. That was, I mean, to this day, the result of probably much of the growth of the church in China, the underground church in China that went back to just this burn that he had for the countless millions who had never heard the name of Jesus. But it all began with a a mother and a sister in the place of prevailing prayer. Or I want you to think about the Hebrides revival, which in the post-World War II environment, people were more concerned with rebuilding the economy, rebuilding the houses they had lost to the war, and just getting back to life as normal. But there were two older sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. One was 84 years old and blind, and the other was 82 and crippled with arthritis. And they were greatly burdened because they'd been told that no young person had attended public worship at their church. So they decided to start praying twice a week on Tuesday and Fridays. They would get on their knees at 10 in the evening and remain there until three or four in the morning, two old women in a humble cottage. This picture of elderly, physically unhealthy, handicapped woman praying through the hours of the night until what many of you know happened in the Hebrides revival. Duncan Campbell came as the evangelist, expecting to be there for 10 days, stayed for many years. And they saw a massive conversion in that place. People just getting saved in the open air because they would just fall into the conviction of God and sense his presence so strong. Or I want you to think about maybe you're a youth in the room. Evan Roberts, who got burdened, he was considered too serious for his age at 13 years old with a desire for a deeper baptism in the Holy Spirit and the salvation of his generation, the salvation of his nation. He prayed through for 13 years until when he was twenty-six years old, a traveling minister led them in a prayer, Bend us, O God. And Evan Roberts began to cry out, Bend me, O God. Save Wales. And Evan Roberts got bent in prayer, and he became a lightning rod of God's presence, and Wales got saved. It's reported that in less than a year, one estimate was in as many as five months, 100,000 souls came into the kingdom. What do we know about prevailing prayer? What do I know about prevailing prayer? I know nothing. I don't just want anecdotes. I want personal history with God. Not just for my sake, so I can someday be a general in a history book, but because I want to meet people at the marriage supper of the Lamb who are there because we prayed them through. Because we prayed like the Moravian's. May the lamb who was slain have the reward of his suffering. Jesus is worthy. Or I want you to think of a more contemporary example. Uh, One of Ignite's friends, Olivia Williamson, who uh, leads Claim Your Campus. There's a prayer group in public and Christian private schools and people, just young students setting up prayer meetings in their school. You know, people complain about prayer not being in the school. There is almost nothing stopping anyone from starting a prayer meeting in a public school. Did you know that? As long as you have a faculty advisor and you have at least one student who's willing, you can start up a student-led organization in that school. You can preach the gospel and you can pray. So this young girl in Kansas got burdened for spiritual awakening in her Catholic school and she wanted to start a, a claim your campus group. And for three months, she showed up by herself for the prayer meeting, praying for God to visit her school with spiritual awakening. After three months, 10 to 15 other students started showing up consistently and she got to lead two of her friends to the Lord. Consistency, weak prayer meetings change history. It doesn't take a massive majority of people. It doesn't take a bunch of noise. It doesn't take a famous speaker. We, everybody here can pray. What I don't want to do is make you feel guilty about our prayerlessness. We all need to pray more. What I want to do is empower you and encourage you that everyone, everyone can pray everyone can lay hold of the promises of God and see history changed as a result of our prayers. David, if I have no idea what time it is, is that like, are we over time, the red, or? Okay, praise God. What I wanna do is I wanna preach us into a prayer meeting. I wanna, what I wanna do at the end, if we have to go get kids, we can, I wanna end with a prayer meeting. But I wanna give you first just two quick teachings that Jesus gave us on the place of prayer. Luke 11 five through 13. This is what Jesus, see, he gives us a parable, then he lays down a principle, and then he gives us an amazing and very large promise at the end. Luke 11, starting in verse five, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks, find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I tell this story to my son, and it's a children's version I just Say, hey, a man needed bread in the middle of the night. And he, you know, comes and, give me bread. And the guy says, no, my kids are sleeping and I'm in bed. And and you're going to wake everybody up. The door is locked. Give me bread. I've got a guest in my house. I need bread. I got to make it dramatic because my son needs to stay engaged. And he loves this story. He asks for it. He goes, tell me the give me bread story. What he doesn't know is I'm instilling in him the type of prayer Jesus wanted to teach. Jesus could have given any story, but he wanted to give us a children's story to teach us the type of boldness God wants from his children in the place of prayer. But don't misunderstand the story. Jesus is not saying that God is like the begrudging neighbor who doesn't want to get out of bed. He says, no, all the more your father is a good father who wants to give your children good gifts. But he's teaching you something about the level of boldness, the level of shameless audacity, the level of holding on. In the original language, it's not ask, done, Seek, done, knock, done. It's a continual asking, seeking, knocking until you have received and found and had the door opened. Because a lot of times what happens in the place of prayer is not that God's arm is being twisted to do something he doesn't want to do. We're being changed in the place of prayer. You start praying for something you've never cared about, like the salvation of Israel, and you will get a heart for the salvation of Israel. You start praying for the salvation of your neighbor who honestly you don't even know or like and all of a sudden you will start caring about them coming to know Jesus. Something happens to us in the place of prayer. Luke 18, and this one, I'm just gonna race through this really quick. The first line tells us everything we need to know. This one says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, Jesus, why would you need to encourage us to always pray and not give up because you'll be tempted to not always pray and to give up, you'll be tempted to lose heart. You'll be tempted to get discouraged. You'll be tempted to think that prayer doesn't work. And Jesus knew that would be part of your regular experience. So he said, I want to proactively give you a parable to teach you to always pray and not give up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being in touch with our humanity. Thank you for being in touch with our predisposition to being distracted and to losing heart easily. He said in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. That's crazy. What threatened him? Her persistence. What was it about this little old lady with no defender that threatened this socially powerful man? Her persistence. I love Bob Sorge teaches on this. He's like, the judge is at his weekend barbecue and all of a sudden it's Saturday afternoon and the ladies stand there saying, when are you going to give me justice? He shows up for work on Monday morning and he thinks he's getting there early and she's like, I'll walk with you to work. When are you going to give me justice? She's everywhere. Day and night, watchman on the wall for the salvation of Israel. When are you going to give me justice? but don't confuse what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying God is like the unjust judge. Nope, not at all. What he goes on to say is he says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How do you develop the type of faith Jesus is looking for? persistence in the place of prayer, holding fast to the promises of God. I'm going to end with this. You know, what's amazing about the life of Abraham in Hebrews 11, it says that his faith did not waver. And I remember reading that thing and thinking, have, did the author of Hebrews not read Genesis? Because Abraham felt like he was pretty up and down. I mean, two different times he lied about the identity of his wife to keep out of trouble. He had uh, a child with a slave woman and the child born of the flesh. He birthed an Ishmael. But you know what? In the beginning, he trusts God's promise, and by the end, he's willing to lay the promise on the altar. He's willing to take his fully grown son, the child of promise, and lay him on the altar, believing that God is even able to raise him from the dead because it's the child of promise. And so while his journey of faith had lots of ups and downs, his journey was ultimately up and to the right. You're going to have good days and bad days in the place of prayer. Your faith is going to be up. It's going to be down. But what we're looking for is trending up and to the right. I'm, it's not about you being strong. It's not about you feeling strong. It's about you laying hold of the strong one. It's about you being willing to admit your weakness and know that God's grace abounds to you in the place of weakness, that God is actually drawn to you in your weakness. I think if there was more admitting of our weakness in the church, that maybe we would have more of God's power attending us. And even asking, we should pray for prayer. My prayer for this morning, what would happen is that God would birth prayer. I'm praying for prayer. I'm praying for more prayer. Praying for more prayer that gets God's attention. Praying for more prayer in my own life and in your life. I just want to lay a seat of prayer. This is already a, a praying community. I just want to pour gas and say more prayer, God. Remember, the possibilities of prayer are the possibilities of God. What's possible in prayer is what is possible for God. I want you to stand to your feet all across this room. And what I want to do, and if you need to go grab kids or you need a scoop for something else later in your day. I genuinely don't know what time it is or how that clock is working in the back. Um, there's a countdown, but I don't know what it's leading to. Um, but here's, here's what I wanna ask. If you're more comfortable where you're at or just kneeling where you are, or you wanna get in the altars, I don't wanna lead you in prayer in the sense that I want you to listen to me pray. The goal over the next five, 10 minutes or however long the Lord would just burden us in the place of prayer is engagement. Something we started doing just this last week in our prayer meeting on campus is I would just yell out a topic and I would say Korean style prayer, which just means everybody pray out loud at once, believing that God is able to hear every prayer ascending to him. And we want a sound of prayer to ascend from this place. I don't want you just to listen to the guy in the microphone. I want to give you topics, things that are near and dear to the Lord's heart. And I want you just for two or three minutes, we're just going to corporately lean into that. And then we're going to shift, and we're just going to go through three or four maybe of these prayer topics and just cry out, God is hearing your prayers. God is hearing your prayers. And I pray that out of this time of prayer, God would birth more prayer. If you're not in one of those prayer meetings I listed, get on that most important tab on the Mission Community Church website. Getting this 26-year-long, I mean, my goodness. My goodness. I mean, that is amazing. Young people, get around the older people. You have some seasoned precious saints in this church, get around these people and learn how to pray. You learn how to pray by praying, okay? So if you're comfortable, I want you just to move out from where you're at first. We're just gonna ask God, put us in touch with our weakness. If you wanna get on your knees where you're at or you wanna come to the front because you feel it's more appropriate, I don't care where you pray from, but I want us together to get in the posture of prayer. Whatever feels appropriate to you, I want us to just begin to cry out, God, put us in touch with our need. God, give us a a greater sense of felt need. God, move us beyond pretty prayer. God, move us beyond casualness in prayer. God, touch us with anguish. God, touch us with deep cries and groans that are beyond words. God, may the Holy Spirit pray through us not just in unknown tongues, but with deep groans and sighs. With tears, God, touch us with tears. Touch us with Hannah-like prayer. God, make us poor in spirit, God. Move us beyond our strength, God. We don't have the resources. Lord, we don't have the talent or the ability. God, we have need. Make us a dependent needy people, God, in this hour, put us in touch with our need. Come on, just begin to ask God, make me needy. Prayer is the language of dependency. God, put us in touch with our need. Let deep burdens be deposited in your people right now things that they won't be able to easily shake or get distracted from. God, I'm asking for the impartation of burdens in the place of prayer. Whisper promises in people's ears. Lord, grip their bellies with compassion and need. Get us off of our navel gazing in this moment, God. Lift our eyes. Lift our eyes off ourselves, God. Give us intercessor hearts. Begin to ask, God, give me your heart as an intercessor. God, get my eyes off of me. God, give me the heart of an intercessor. Deep sighs and groans, midwives for revival and spiritual awakening in the nations of the earth. Come on, just begin to ask for a jealousy for God's glory. This is primary. This is first line of the Lord's Prayer. A jealousy for God's name to be revered and honored and glorified. This is just, Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just begin in your own way to begin to ask God's name to be honored in the land. Come on, just begin to ask God, let your name be honored in the earth. His word says that his name will be made great in every place that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Begin to ask for God's name to be honored in every public high school, in every middle school, in elementary school, in this region, in this part of Charlotte, in this area, in neighborhoods and houses. Come on, at United Faith Christian Academy, at Christian schools, campuses and universities, maybe there's a nation on your heart. Ask for God's name to be made great in that place. To be highly exalted, lifted up. Come on, let him hear your prayer. Get jealous for God's glory. Just begin to pray for the public unveiling of Jesus. For Jesus to be glorified in this nation. Maybe you've got a burden for Israel. Just begin to pray for the light of God's face to shine on that people. For the glory of God that rests in the face of Jesus to shine in the hearts of people. Come on, whether for nations or maybe there's prodigal sons or daughters, maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker that doesn't know the Lord. I want you just to begin to bring the lost before him. Just begin to bring unreached peoples or lost friends and family, just begin to bring them to the feet of Jesus. Ask him, come on, prevail in prayer. Just begin to ask him, God, would you move in their life? Come on, specific names, specific groups of people, just bring them to his feet. Right now that he would soften hard hearts, that he would open blind eyes, That he would give people a true hearing of the gospel. That he would encounter people in dreams and visions in the night. Come on, you have people in your life. Make it personal. Cry out for them. Stand in the gap. Show them your face. Let the light of the gospel shine in their hearts. Come on, you lift your voice. The goal is engagement. You engage with God. Don't just listen, engage. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Come on, you have open access. Be very bold. Even today, even now, God. Apprehend their hearts. We pray for Charlotte, God. Let the light of your face shine here, God. We say we can't save a single person in our strength, God. Save them, oh God. God, Give us your burden for the lost, God. Give us that burden that caused Jesus to leave heaven, to seek and save the lost. Give us more of that heart, God, more of those tears for the lost. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Then he taught us to pray this. He said, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would ekbalo, that he would thrust forth and send out labors. Just begin to ask God to send forth another wave of missions. God, we ask, Lord, for Lauren Cunningham's vision. God, millions of missionaries, God, send them forth. Come on, yes. Lord, that vision, that heavenly vision you gave Lauren, God of the missionaries crashing on the yes. way, Lord, we yes. ask. Yes, Lord. Yes. God of America, another student volunteer mission movement. God, do it again. Yes, do it again, Lord. Yes. Come on, pray yes. for the birth of missionaries. God we ask, thrust forth missionaries, God! Oh, do it again.
1: Yes, do it again for revival, make it revival, revival, do it again, God. Do it again,
0: God. Do it to help, God. Come on, God. Oh, Jesus told us to pray these words. He said, Send forth laborers, God, we ask, send them yeah. forth. God, open up the 10:40. God, we ask for the Middle East. God, yes. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes. Lord, let yes. the light of Your face shine in that place. God. Yes. Yes, God, God in this generation, let the let the great commission be fulfilled in this hour. God. Every people group, Lord, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, God. Raise up a new generation of missionaries, God. Thrust them forth, God. And let's just end this time just crying out for Israel. Cry out for physical protection, Lord. We cry out as David prayed for our own hearts to be enlarged to carry your people in our hearts, for a global awareness in the church to cry out. Pray for the hardness that Paul talked about being over their hearts, the veil over their hearts to be lifted. That even in this hour of trouble, they would cry out for deliverance and you would show them Jesus. God, we ask right now in this hour for the saving of many souls. Lord, we ask for the hardness of heart to be soft in God. Lord, we ask for the veil over hearts to be lifted that they could see the light of the gospel. Show them Jesus. As they cry out for deliverance, show them Jesus. Come on, lift your voices. Just two more minutes, just engage, just cry out, just lay a hold of the Lord. Pour out your spirit, God. Nothing's going to move forward unless it's your spirit, God. We're asking for an outpouring, God. Pour out your spirit, God.
1: Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. If you live in the Charlotte area, we encourage you to worship with us on Sundays at 10 a.m. We encourage you also to give to this ministry so we can continue spreading the gospel to our city and throughout the world. You can go to our website at missioncommunity.cc, click on the Give button, and the rest is simple. Have a great rest of your week. God
0: bless.